Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Warren Smith, who very recently went viral for a tiny little clip that he posted to his tiny little YouTube channel of him speaking with a student of his through the question of whether or not J.K. Rowling is so-called transphobic. In that clip, Warren executes the Socratic method with grace and patience, and over the course of those couple minutes, the student of his own accord changes his mind. Well, that clip gets picked up and shuffled all around the internet because lo and behold, people thinking critically is just so novel nowadays. And as you would imagine, the people whose ideology is threatened by critical thinking have now targeted Warren and have tried to cancel him, like get him actually fired from his job. I reached out to him. He was gracious enough to grant me an interview. And in this interview, we talk about his life and how he came to believe what he believes and how he thinks and what his goal and role is as a teacher and as a filmmaker as well. If you are interested in Warren's work, links to his YouTube and Twitter are down there in the description. If you appreciate this channel, consider donating a bit via the tip jars linked in the description and like and subscribe and all that fun stuff. Without further ado, here is Warren Smith. Whereabouts are you? I'm in Massachusetts. Are you fond of that part of the country? I am. Yeah, I'm originally from North Carolina. So came here for graduate school. And you just kept on graduating? Yeah, basically. (laughs) Now, 2016, I was looking at different schools, got into three. And one was in Baltimore. Looked at that city, looked at Boston, just really loved Boston. There's all kinds of history here. And yeah, I love New England. It's it's cool. Why did you choose graduate school of all the things that you could do? You could have gone into the military. You could have like started (laughs) an Etsy shop. Like why graduate school? Good question. I I went to undergrad for filmmaking and then went, had some experiences after that, went out to Hollywood, did that whole thing. And after a few years, I knew I didn't want to live in LA. So um, my parents were both professors. So I was like, oh, teaching's a really cool career. And to do that, you need a master's. And it was just kind of a, a sensible next step. And I also got a half ride scholarship. So it was wasn't too unaffordable. Mm-hmm. So it was just an opportunity that I decided to take. Yeah. What what uh, branch of academia did you go into? Um, so I was doing visual media arts, which is basically their film school. That's what they call their film school. Yeah. And so I just kind of continued visual. that trajectory of filmmaking. And then I started working as a TA, thinking I would teach film studies at the college level. And I started doing that, but I'm not tenured or anything. I started teaching. I've always been teaching at Emerson, like one class a semester and then some Mm -hmm. intensives during the summers. But I started teaching full-time high school after graduating. And right before COVID, that was my first year teaching when COVID happened. How did you you take to that high school? 
was interesting. It was cool. It was, yeah. Yeah. Um, are we, are, is this the show right now? Yeah, kidding. we're just going to cut right in because you right, just started sweet. being interesting. Sometimes okay. it takes people a good 10 minutes to get interesting, but you're already know, interesting. There's, there's just the only things I can't talk about are the school doesn't want the student ID'd or the school, but. Oh, okay. I can talk about I, anything else. So Emerson is part of. Emerson's what? public record already. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. That's right. not where the video yeah. is. Well, I mean, the, the viral incident is uh, nominally why you're here, but I'm really just interested in, in what you, who you are, what you actually cool. think. Yeah. That's cool. I appreciate that. That's a nice approach. It's good yeah. to get away from that, talking about the video over and over. Yeah, yeah, yeah I bet. Uh, yeah. Uh, good video. Did you, did you have any idea that you would um, be shaking no. the foundations of Western woke thought? <laughs> no 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 not at all <laughs> you weren't being like taking a page out of socrates book and you're like i'm gonna gadfly the sophists no it was not no. i thought it was interesting so i posted it to my teaching portfolio kind of youtube type i yeah. as a filmmaker i was telling you about how filmmaking and i've been posting my short films that i made back in undergrad and then i've been producing on my own and because a filmmaker is nothing without an audience and I do think YouTube is a remarkable technology, a Gutenberg revolution. Uh, it's the democratization of video. It's just remarkable that we have the ability to reach an audience now. So I would have been a fool not to play with that technology. I never expected anything to really occur, not from a video yeah. like that. That was, you know, I, I used to enjoy hosting some lectures and things, but that's kind of how that came about. Somebody, uh, somebody was being snarky in my retweet of you. Um, <laughs> and part of the reason I, I, uh, reached out to you cause I, you just published a video a couple days ago mm -hmm. responding to some threats you were receiving and there was a freshness and a, I'm sorry to say an anxiety, like you were really nervous. I'm like, mm. he, there was something very alive that you were communicating, but your production mm. values were just excellent. You know, this great microphone, great camera, great angle. The color grading mm. was excellent. And somebody snarkily replied, oh, this is really fortunate that he just had all this set up to make this video when his other video went viral, whatever. And now it turns uh, out you had all the yeah. equipment anyways before a, any of this. He's, he's yeah, already... And I say the word filmmaker, but it's not film, obviously. It's all digital now. Oh, okay. so yeah. I've always... That's been my my passion, so... Yeah. It all just kind of lined up. I just I was like, "Whoa, opportunity! I'm gonna see what I can do with this because there's no going backwards. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle, and people, everyone at work knows about it, and for good or bad. Or, yeah. So, and I would be a fool not to. I would regret. I would regret not seeing what comes out of it and taking the shot. Yeah, that's like when that Pierce Morgan interview happened. I mean, that was a day after it. My <laughs> the school found out. And then literally the next day I went and did that without talking to anyone. And they were really? like, yeah, I don't even know if I should talk about this, but they were like, dude, what the hell? Like you at least run it by us. I was like, what does this have to do with you though? But anyways, um, I forgot. Sorry. My phone or, no, have you been following this so-called culture war much? Like you, are oh, you on X? Yeah, I, mean, I know what you mean like, by culture war. Yeah. I think yeah. I know do you shit post? Do you have an alt? And don't answer if no, if you do. I had, yeah. No, I hadn't been using X for three years before. The only reason okay. I got back on X was after Elon tweeted that. Oh shoot! 
Yeah. And then my brother who's savvy at all this, he's like, dude, get going, get your, here, get, find your old account, <laughs> do something with this. <laughs> I was like, oh, huh? Sense. Okay. So you had no idea. Well, I guess you had some idea that there's a lot of turmoil going on, a lot of cultural conversation going yeah. on. I'm sure it's reflected yeah. in, in the work you do with teens and the work you've done with media. Yeah. You were in LA. So yeah. Yeah. Did you yeah. have a strong position? Have you had a strong position in this or are you just kind of watching it from the sidelines? I started to have, I never really thought about it until about two, I went to graduate school in 2016 and shortly after arriving at that college, I started to notice certain things that started to, it caused me to start questioning presuppositions that I had myself, things such as telling people certain students had certain value based off the color of their skin whether or not you can participate in um, a conversation and if so how much you're allowed to talk certain events are did you know like the famous incident at evergreen college with eric weinstein or was it brett weinstein, brett weinstein. do you brett know weinstein? who i am just question uh no okay cool C continue um, I, I'm the major documentarian of the. I was there when it serious? happened. You I compiled. Oh shit! I recognize. Yeah, I saw your documentary. <laughs> okay, there we go, <laughs> dude. That was great. That had a massive impact on me. I was blown huh. away by by that. Okay. By yeah, the fact that they would be like, "Okay, all white people stay home, please." I was. Yeah, that's a perfect. That's amazing that you. Did and that. you saw oh, that really? I did see. Your, it. I saw that yeah. documentary. Oh, I didn't see I mean, anything. Not to that extreme, but you kind of saw to that extreme. Yeah. That was what happened at Evergreen was I did epic. see some pretty yeah, that was epic level. The smaller things that it was more contained and subtle and um and what was your you know, do you remember like the feeling that you get when you'd encounter that? Like uh, annoyance, yeah. cringe, uh like what are you guys doing? Worry, what it was it, it there was a protest there was a faculty assembly and about 300 students and some staff came in with placards and things saying emerson's racist and that kind of sparked um a conversation that i started to see some some major changes after that and i was taking a pedagogy class with with the dean the undergraduate dean he teaches mm -hmm. one class a year and he was teaching this class. And the day after this protest happened, we had class that evening. It was a three and a half hour class once a week. It's about 12 people in the class. And they brought in the, per the person from the office of, of diversity and equity and um, the, where you make your anonymous bias reports and the office yeah. of diversity inclusion, whatever. So they're, they're there leading this discussion and that was the first time where they there was two other white students in the class and we were told to to just listen and to allow our space to be to provide other space for other people yeah. and yeah. i was th just thinking i had never thought about this before i was thinking that's fascinating that you're determining the a student's voice based off of the color of their skin isn't that kind of i never didn't say this out loud at the time i was thinking doesn't that there's something wrong about that. What is it? Oh, that's treating people of value based off the color of their skin. Isn't that like literally contradictory to everything I thought was right and wrong about racism? Yeah. 
And then, but then we they went around the room and they just wanted to hear from anyone who wasn't white, basically, to hear their perspectives. And was, at the time, I was genuinely feeling for all, and I still I, feeling for all of them, being like, because they were their claims were, you know, this is a uh, it's so difficult being a student at Emerson because it's so racist too. And I was just thinking, this is one of the most liberal colleges in the world. I know Evergreen is considered the most liberal, but Emerson is up there. It's up there, and it, it's an art school in Boston. A communication school. It's sorry, and I couldn't. I was listening to their claims. There was nothing solid. Some of the students started a Facebook post where they would try and quote their teachers, possibly out of context, trying to get them in trouble. And I was just thinking, that's kind of a strange tactic. Anyways, that was the first. That really stood out in my mind. That really does. I could. I can visualize it vividly if I close my eyes and go back there. Hmm. And I remember even the dean seemed shaken by it. And I rode the elevator down with him after class. And we were sitting in the room and the head of the office, the diversity, equity, inclusion office was talking about decolonizing the canon. That was his big project prior to all this. Decolonializing or colonizing the canon. Yeah. And I remember him in the elevator. He goes, oh, decolonizing the canon, like thinking no one. But, and I was standing there next to him. I could tell that he was... Something was off about this. He was frustrated by it, but he wasn't. There was a fear amongst teachers to say anything to break ranks. And I started teaching as a TA, and I was going to be given my first official class about a year later. Not even, no, it was actually that same year because of the fallout of that affected it. And the teacher who I had been TAing for, for the, I was there for three years. So my final year, about to start teaching. And she had a student who wasn't showing up to class, wasn't doing work, and she was going to fail them. And I was going to be taking over the class in the next semester. And she was giving me her advice. She was saying, hold student to standard, hold students to standard. Don't be afraid to call them out. And then that protest and everything happened I was telling you about. Now we're two weeks later, I'm about to start. And she goes, remember that conversation we had? I was so wrong about that approach. It's so important to be empathetic and put yourself in their shoes because that student looked at me and told me, yes, I'm not coming to class. And I know, I know I'm not doing my homework. This is an undergrad student who's living in the dorm. I'm not coming to class, but you, you don't understand how hard it is to be black at Emerson. And so I, I didn't fail that student. We made accommodations and I was just thinking, well, like, okay. I didn't say anything at the time, hmm. but if the student had a different skin color, would they have been failed? Why are grades being assigned? There just has to be some objectivity in all of this. And, and I understand the nobility of the intentions. I understand the nobility of the intentions behind equity, which is different than outcome, you know, it, uh, um, I mean, which is outcome, which is enforcing the outcome rather than the opportunity. But it's, I understand the nobility of the intentions, but there's something within the very mechanism itself that I don't think is sustainable. And then I started to experience firsthand. It just felt off. Mm -hmm. And then I would try and talk about it to people, talk about it to my family even. And they just, they just, they didn't believe me that this stuff was happening. And I okay. remember what happened at Evergreen. And I showed, I showed, I was talking to my mom, who was a professor, and I showed her that story about Heather and, and I right. showed that your doc, and I, um, they didn't believe it. When I tried to explain that there was this day, they didn't believe it. 
Yeah. You know? huh. So. Huh. Yeah, but, the um, is. Well, the, yeah, the question's wide open. So it sounds like you were kind of like, there's something off about this, but there's a chillness in your voice. I don't know if that's your, like a demeanor that you've uh, cultivated for this moment in your life or something like that because you, you're now you're now supposed to be like the the critical professor like that's your brand i'm i'm, I'm ribbing <laughs> you i'm ribbing you you know but um are you worried about it you said it's not sustainable what if every major let's say college of education is uh completely captured by this ideology like is that what what's the downstream effects of this well they already are it's already they've become it's become the the universal mode of thinking it's okay infiltrated it's not the right word it's just become the norm the the uh, universal mode of thinking it's yeah it's it seems to be the standard we should say okay the standard way of thinking at least i'm sure there's others exceptions in certain parts of the country but in massachusetts at colleges where i've been to this and from what i've heard from others as well it's for what i've seen with my own eyes it's the norm where i'm okay. at emerson it's the norm so There's, you yeah is it a is it proper to call it a way of thinking i mean is it is it is it thought that one of the things that you said and that you've said is like critical thinking. I love asking people what they mean by critical thinking, because that's a very vague term. We know what critical, crit, critical um, theory is. I mean, if, if you do the research, you can figure out what critical theory is, but what's critical thinking and is critical theory or is this dominant paradigm? Is it a way of thinking? Is it, is it, does it have the same kind of constitution and um, uh, intention as what you call critical thinking? I think, to me, critical thinking is the ability to arrive at the best decision, given what is presented. So it's not always about dismantling a presupposition necessarily, or a political argument or a debate. Okay. Sometimes there's options laid ahead of you, and yeah. you have to say... So there, I was in an interview yesterday talking to someone, and they were talking... They pose the question of, well, if you don't push back on pronouns in the classroom, where do you stop? Why can't you? And I was thinking, and my position was, I can't die on that hill, the first hill I get to. Yes, if I have students in my classroom who want me to use a pronoun, I have certain expectations as a teacher. If I were to refuse to do that, especially at Emerson, I would be fired. Right now... So I'm not going to, I, as long as it's, so there's the famous case with like Jordan Peterson, for example, where it became Bill C-16, it becomes opposed by law. Now he takes the stance. They say, you refuse to use pronouns. I never refuse to use pronouns. He says, in my classroom, if it's a one-to-one, -one, eye to eye contact, I'll make that decision. That's up to me. It's not imposed by law. Okay. And so, I, and I agree with that because if I did die on that hill, my argument was that if every teacher who was willing to push back on on any of this were to die on that first hill that they encountered there would be no teachers that are willing to push back teaching let's take k through 12. if they're all they can't get past that first hill there's no mm. one teaching the, these kids okay 
who, you know, you, you see what I mean? So what are the larger yeah. implications? That's critical thinking. Be able to, to game that out and to think about there's no perfect option. Okay. Winston Churchill saying democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. There's no, there's still going to be drawbacks. Mm -hmm. It's what is the least bad option for the long term. That okay. comes from, yeah, playing it out. Okay. Well, then what is the long-term goal as a teacher then, if you game that out? And, and uh, just career-wise aside, golden watch yeah. or whatever they give teachers nowadays aside, pension, whatever aside, like what is like the, the arc of being a teacher for you? Be able to make the largest impact to as many people as possible in its most simple form, I think. Okay. Which is why I, pr I think I'm so fascinated by YouTube originally. The fact that you can, if you record a lesson, record a lecture, if people find value in that, you can now reach more than 10 people in a classroom. Whoever's going to watch it, there's no limit to that. That's a remarkable thing to me. Now working with K through 12, and I can't get into the curriculum specifics of the school and everything, but it's, you are... It's different than working it with undergrads. I, I mean, I worked with undergrads as a TA. The work I do at Emerson is professional studies, so they're working prof professionals who are taking a class to get a professional certificate, a filmmaking certificate, so it's a script-to-screen class. So they're trying to hone a specific skill to enhance their professional practice. In the summers, I, I teach a three-week-long, used to be a five-week-long intensive. They call it pre-college. That's high school students, pre-college, that are living in the dorms for five weeks doing an intensive course, filmmaking. So mm. I'm primarily working with that age group. And with that age group, I see it as trying to, as best I can, prepare them for life, for becoming adults it's essentially that's that's okay. most basic then i was going to ask you to to define impact and you've done that and and impact is uh, chained to creating adults so what is what is an adult what is a good adult yeah what is a good adult that's a good question i think it, this word autonomy keeps coming to my mind. I was asking myself this actually earlier. <laughs> but why is autonomy so fascinating to me? The ability to be self-sufficient, yeah. which comes being able to think for yourself. But so an autonomy, an autonomous filmmaker, for example, has the ability to raise finances, write a screenplay, execute the screenplay, and reach an audience. Now, traditionally, that was required by gatekeepers. You had to have distribution, you had to have financiers, you had studios to produce it. And, and being in Hollywood, I realized, I witnessed the frustration around by so many filmmakers in that system where mm. they were struggling through the agents. An agent's job is to be the gatekeeper and to cross. Yeah. The well, they sell themselves as the key, the key masters, but they're actually the gatekeepers, right? They yeah, give, well, they're like, we'll, then, we'll give you access, and like, well, we won't give you access. It's like a you, double. Because how, how do you, when I, I was an assistant to a talent agent, and we would get unsolicited screenplays sent to us all the time. We don't read them. We're not, 
told not to read them because it opens up to lawsuits, but their policies, we don't take any unsolicited <sighs> material. Yeah. So then I would get the question, well, how do I get an agent? If you won't read my screenplay, unless I have an agent, how do I get, it's a catch 22 and it's most at its pregent. What, what do you do? <laughs> you there? Well, there's no real answer to that. The best answer is do something off the wall and get them to come to you. It's okay. The, yeah. And which is not really an answer, but that's really, it's the best I can formulate. I want to, I want to avoid, um, vulgarity, but either you do something to serve them or in a very obsequious manner, or like you either ingratiate yourself to them or you, or you, you have to have value. You have to have value. So yeah. look, this little vi viral video thing. All right. It goes out. Had Elon how did you find it? Do you know how, who, how did what? who ripped it? Do you know how it Lee jumped? Harris. Lee Harris, okay. who actually I did an interview with. And I'm not, he, I don't have, I'm not bitter at all about that, honestly, because he did, had he not done that, none yeah. of this would have happened. You got discovered. So, so yeah, you have, I mean, you're, he, you're content minded now. You're not in the Hollywood system. You're content minded. No. Yes, correct. I'm not in the Hollywood system. But, Which means um, like, and by that, I mean, just evoking that you write a script, there's all these uh, unions and agencies and all that stuff where, where uh, intellectual property rights are really tightly controlled and held because there's a lot of money at stake in, in content land and YouTube land. It's just like you throw things out and if it gets shared, like that's what you want. You just want your stuff to be shared. And then eventually it leads to. Well, this is my, the example I was trying to give us. So that little video, it goes viral. All right. Yeah. And so now suddenly. I get approached by an agent, for example, and I'm looking uh, at the, the, if not an agent, other people are now approaching me yeah. because they see some value, whatever, whether or not it's actually there, it's perceived value. Yeah. That's my example of if you can do something off the wall or I use that as a euphemism, but hmm. make a movie yourself because now you can, you you just a moment ago, you commented on having that you have production value. I can see it in your room. Like you, yeah. you can have audio, you can have video cameras that do and shoot 4k and, and, and better. So you have the ability to do things that we could not do 20 years ago. We yeah. Could not. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah. forgot where I was going with that. No, well, this is a really, um, it's a really good conversation. Um, cause it's going to lead us to a lot of other places, but the, the other day, I just inherited a couple of, I'm a stepfather, which is kind of a new development in my life. And I've worked with kids a lot, you know, so I understand how kids are. But now that like I'm living with kids, I'm understanding like if something, I've, and one of the aspects of me becoming an adult was realizing nothing gets done without somebody doing it. Like I have to mm -hmm. actually take the initiative, you know, and like instilling, taking the initiative and it really folds into your autonomy, but it's just such a novel thought. I, I suppose probably for, for today's generation, like everything is so given to them that they have no idea what it takes to make anything. Right. And you, they're given more and more capacity. You know, the internet was supposed to give us great capacity and it does to produce things, but unless you do it, it doesn't happen. Unless you do, it doesn't happen. Now that's yeah. the first thing is to have initiative, but then you have to overcome the hurdle of like, like you said, a filmmaker isn't anything without attention. Like you can toil for 20 years writing novels. Nobody sees them. You're not really a writer until anybody sees them. So there's that getting the attention thing. Then there's following through. Then there's understanding how to do it. Being a teacher, it's got to be really 
amazing because there's so many different things to teach and you can just focus on technique, but technique is just one aspect of. I really enjoy it because it allows me to do what I love. And it, first of all, allows me to do what I love, have access to cool equipment. Yeah. Work with young people who are trying to achieve the same thing. And it allows you freedom of schedule having vacations, holidays yeah, to yeah. pursue other things. So it's a great job for someone who's wants to be an entrepreneur as well and do other things. And who knows where that's going to take you. So it was a great fit for always trying to write a movie and produce content and yeah. a movie I've been working on for four or five years now, the secret scholar society, which became the name of the channel. And there's a little yeah. short, rough little, that we just produced a friend and I um, just before all this happened, like a month ago, we posted it and it's sort of just a 15 minute version of the, I would like to turn that into a full feature. And, and that's a huge goal of mine. I've kind of been sidetracked now with all of this, but I was someday I wanted to, I want yeah. to really do that. Why, why filmmaking then? Oh, that's a question that I've just, ever since I was a kid, it's all I've wanted to do. Yeah. Were you running around with the super eight? Not a super eight. I had uh, my old camera over there, little cassettes that yeah. it wasn't super eight, no, but iMovie, one of those yeah, little okay. colored blue IMAX with the crazy pastel colors. Yeah. My parents had one of those. I found iMovie, started editing. You know, and mm -hmm. I was, ran around with my friends, essentially like doing super eight, mm -hmm. yeah, just digitally. What about the, uh, when you think of the history of film, what's your, uh, what would be your influences or not just influences, I suppose, but just like the stuff that you really like, what you really Heath sing. Ledger. Heath Ledger had a huge impact on me and I'm not sure huh. why. Yeah. That was the Did he make to... any films himself? Did he get he a chance directed, to direct? He directed, he was working on a screenplay. Huh. He, he was, this is interesting. He was developing what became the Queen's Gambit. He was going to direct Queen's Gambit. Oh, really? As Probably not as a series. Film. Yeah, as a film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He directed a short, a super experimental black and white, might have been on film. You know, some people say, oh, it's too dark and it shows him committing suicide and things, but he was just kind of an artistic, he was a little out there in those, in those ways. And I just really, I don't know why he had such an, his bravery has such an impact on me seeing Brokeback Mountain had a big impact just being like, whoa, that he, wow. He put himself out there and I have a kind of, I don't know. I honestly don't know why him so much, huh. but obviously everybody, once he did Joker and the dark Knight, everybody started, you know, he died at that point, but I had been following him for years before that. Really? Ever since yeah, and 10 was, things I hate about you or something. I mean, probably a little, probably monsters ball. I mean, yeah, I knew about him from then, uh, but yeah. that wasn't what got me into it. It was like things like monsters ball and candy, these little okay. smaller projects that were kind of and, gritty. It was gritty indies that we don't see as much anymore. Yeah. When was it like you wanted to, you saw himself, you saw yourself in him or was there something Possibly. about him? Like Probably the, a little bit. Yeah. I wanted to see myself in him a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Was that like contra to who you perceived yourself as a teenager? Like, were you the opposite of what you saw in Heath? No, I think he, I think I read it resonated because I, I saw some of myself already there. It kind of reflected back to me. I was, 
pretty introverted, you know, but my friends were all, I was in the cool crowd, but I was, and I was going off to boarding school and hmm. yeah, I was just this, you know, kind of like the indie vibe or whatever. And I don't know, huh. but yeah, I was a little quiet and everything. And uh, you had mentioned my demeanor. This is just, I've always been like this. I, I know. I'm sorry to bust your balls. Like we're, no, we're strangers, go for it. but no, 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 <laughs> no whatever. Huh. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah, when he died, because I, I was heading off to film school pretty soon after that. I knew, but I knew, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. That was Okay. Yeah. If I could have done anything back then, I would have been an actor to be like him. But I never strived to be an actor for some reason. Okay. Well, I wonder, um, what are some of the character building aspects? This sounds like a cheesy question, but what are some of the character building aspects of filmmaking? What do you mean? Character building? Like... Or oh, characters within the movie? No, like, uh, what has it, um, what are some of the ways that studying film and then engaging in the practice of filmmaking, um, how has that developed you or changed you or in what direction have you had to grow as a person? Like, this is a really yeah. cheesy question. I'm just no, wondering. No. It's such a cutthroat Hollywood is such a cutthroat industry and a cutthroat game. It's a rigged game. It's the most rigged game I can even. Hmm. It's so, so proper. Are you talking about there? It, well, like we were talking about with agents before. Okay. And you've got to have, well, you know, getting your foot in the door. And, is it? the Oscars, which gets nominated. It's so artificial now. And there's oh, yeah, such super a, artificial such now. agenda behind, yeah. behind everything. But there was, I went through, you know, adversity in that space. I feel like I accomplished a lot being able to even produce short films in undergrad. It was, it was a miracle in itself. And I was on fire for a while. <laughs> what do you mean? I I've wrote four screenplays, got three produced, all at UNC School of the Arts. And then hmm. right out of the gate, we graduated. I raised $25,000, got a crew of like 25 students together and produced hmm. and wrote a feature. And, it, you know, it's okay. It's not great. And we filmed it all where I grew up, around this cabin where I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. Yeah. You know, and just... And you were the director and producer then? I was not the director. I was I was a producing student. I went into producing because I realized that that is the big picture producing. It, I could, it's producer's the first one in, the last one out. They're the one who finds the story and hires the director often. Yeah, if you have someone like Christopher Nolan, that's very rare though. That's what I realized. It's extremely rare for someone to be able to write a screenplay and then bring it to the screen. My big priority was take what's in here and try and get that on the screen. And I could do yeah. that by writing and producing. And if I okay. had to bring someone else and be like, you're the director and give them credit to direct, fine. I just wanted it on screen. Huh. So I, it there was just some... Things got... When you have that many people... Egos can get it's a it's a an endeavor where egos kind of can clash and yeah. friendships can go awry and so, and so I found myself 
returning from the West Coast, not sure what I was going to do. Uh, and had to do some soul searching and that's how I ended up going back into academia. I was like, you in know, the teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, it'd just be cool to be a film professor thinking huh. that would be, yeah. And that was, I always was striving for that. And then kind of through those experiences I was talking about at Emerson, I started to realize me getting tenure is probably never, I mean, it's never <laughs> going to happen. No one's going to hire me for tenure. <laughs> and so I, and honestly, I'm kind of, I'm happy with K through 12. Hmm. There's a lot that goes with tenure too. A lot of stress and expectations. And I mean, it'd be cool, but they're honest. If they offered it to me, I would take it, but they're never going to. But, so I'm happy where I am though. Hmm. Honestly. You, um, yeah. Filmmaking so many people and so much ego because you know, the actors and there's probably like a different type of ego at every step of the way. Everybody's probably got their egos going on and their little mini games and stuff. And like the producer, I guess you're, are you kind of like the orchestrator of egos? Yeah. You're like, okay, well, I'm going yeah, to try to get everybody. Yeah. You've got to, it all falls on you at the end of the day. Somebody has to, the buck has to start with some stop with somebody. Yeah. And that's like, so you see like the Alec Baldwin, that's why when you, something goes awry in that scenario, it, yeah. who does it fall on? Yeah. So, but it, yeah, actors are such interesting people. When you think about like they, you've got to be a little bit crazy to be willing to put yourself out there and that's in that way. And you've got to, but they're all very different people as well, but you encounter yeah. some very interesting personality types. There's a lot of vanity for sure. Yeah. What about directors typically? As far as personality, what, yeah. What kind of a person makes a good director? Well, you in got your two experience. Who makes a good director? Oh, there, it's it's such a strange game, though. That the best I th are the ones who can who have the. It, what makes a good director is vision. That's why a director is hired for clarity, consistency of vision. They okay. need. That's why it's only one person because it has to be cohesive. Okay. Right. But a great director is someone who can have so has so much vision that they can write the movie and then bring it to fruition. But that's so rare. So someone like Christopher Nolan, for example, or Tarantino. That's the majority of directors are working directors in the same way working writers are, where they're just brought on to direct a pilot or an episode of a show, and then someone else directs the next one. There's not mm -hmm. that same amount of ownership as an auteur who's writing this thing and bringing it mm -hmm. to fruition. So they're very two different modes and i realized that working at the agency because we were working with screenwriters prim primarily and s most screenwriters most make their money doing rewrites second drafts third drafts polishes they don't yeah. create the story <laughs> yeah know, that's where the yeah. money is it's about a paycheck at the end of the day so it's yeah a yeah and and a producer what kind of what kind of focus or direction do you have it's like so like, are you just the glue for the whole thing so the director has his or her vision and then the producer's kind of like the the hen you're the over... business you're the okay. business mind so you're the of the shield. entire thing okay so you're making you're sure keeping that... the train running on okay. the tracks yeah. in the right direction balancing all the personalities you brought in the director you've packaged the whole thing because wow. you bought ideally you bought the ip the the rights to the book or whatever because you see the battle plan all the way to fruition to the point of mm. distribution you wow. can see how it's going to make profit you have to be able to do that and that just making profit 
And movies are one of the worst things. They say the, the third worst thing are nightclubs, restaurants, and movies, I think, are the worst, something like that. To the worst invest investments. In. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're, it's so, it's next to impossible to make your money back. It's, especially we're hearing now more and more today. That's why we're seeing the movies being made the way that they are being made now. Because we we cut out DVD sales. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm all for the democratization of all this and less gatekeepers. But yeah. if you don't have the DVD sales, it makes it harder to recoup. Yeah. And so it's they're less likely to gamble on a movie like Monsters Ball, Little Heath Ledger Indie, right? They they want the superhero stuff that they because they allows them to make that measurement and know yeah. they're going to get profit with more clarity. Right? You can't gamble as much. What what are your thoughts on the uh, implementation of equity agendas within the movie business? It seems that that is at odds with a business perspective. I'm wondering you if you have any insight so. in that. Yeah, yeah, but maybe it, it, is. it is a way of shoring up funds. I don't know. What do you think? It's bad business. And they, they're realizing that it's social pressure, though. It's From in whom? the same way. We were talking about it like at the universities. Why are the universities this way? Yeah. It's not from donors, I don't think. It's not, it's because, well, universities, because they're trying to appeal to students, to recruit students. They need to have a an image. They, and you, honestly, the, the students that are arriving, they are arriving with this thought, this mindset mm -hmm. of, I need safe spaces. If, I, if there's a bias, if I recognize, I want someone to be able to report it to, mm -hmm. that's what they've come to expect. That's what they want out of their campus in the same way they want good food in the cafeteria. Does that carry over the movie business? They're appealing to an audience in the same way universities are appealing to recruiting students. So yeah. why is Kathleen Kennedy behaving the way? Why do the Oscars, let's take the Oscars. Why do the Oscars play at this game? It's the ultimate spectacle so it's being shown out to all these people across the country. They want to look good. They want it to, it's putting on a show. It's, yeah. I do, you know, most of these people probably don't believe as much of this nonsense as they say, but it's putting on a show. Yeah. But I guess, so it just, it, I guess it's a bigger question beyond your and mine pay grade, but it's almost like, <sighs> Why would they appeal? Why would they try to make a show out of something that's unappealing, right? And and I guess they're relying on this virtue signaling stuff. I, I don't know. It's just more and more cringe. It doesn't seem to be as punchy and and as and valent. You know, if you look at what where Marvel's gone, I guess you brought up Kathleen Kitty. It's like, are you trying to cause people to watch this, or are you trying to attract people to watch this? Same with college. Like if the colleges of education create a bunch of woke students, then the colleges of education are justified to create more woke students. Yeah. Because it feels so good to feel like you're doing the right thing, to feel like huh. you're fighting. Let's just take racism. I'm against racism. I'm, I'll stand up for this. I'll, that's why you see, that's why we started seeing people when they accepted an Oscar. They started ever since the Marlon Brando move. Oh. Now they go up and they make a political statement. Yeah. Because it's why people virtue signal. It's yeah. I'm on, this is my, my 10 seconds on stage in front of 
all these colleagues that I care the more about in this world than anyone else is the approval of everyone in this room. And I'm looking out on them. What am I going to say? I'm going to make myself look good. I'm going to feel so good doing it. I am a hero with you all. And I agree. And that's virtue signaling. Yeah. Huh. How do you, how have you avoided that in your own life? Well, I've never got an Oscar. I never had a <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Huh. I just, that's a good question. I, I observe things and I've come to peace with what I believe and what I think is right and wrong. What's that based and, on? If you don't mind me asking. Good question. There's certain principles that I do. You can never get rid of subjectivity completely in critical thinking because that's how we come to terms with why we're engaging in critical thinking. The why. Why does this matter? Why do I want to figure out the larger implications for the long term? For me, it's I do think it's important that I genuinely believe that everyone should be treated equally, regardless of their race and their gender, sexuality, religion. Right? I, I genuinely believe that, which is why I do have an issue when hmm. certain students are treated differently based on the color of their skin. Because it's a clear, there's certain lines that I'm a big fan of Winston Churchill for this, for this very reason. There's certain lines that cannot be crossed, you know, regardless of the nobility of the intentions to cross them, regardless of, I can understand why it would benefit you and I want to help you. So we're going to make an exception here, but it's a slippery slope. And we have to, there, it used to be where we agreed on all of this and we would not, we understood the importance of never allowing that line to be crossed. But now things have changed where the good intentions have, we're crossing that line out of an effort for certain good intentions. But again, the long-term implications of that. And I say Churchill because he was like, no, we won't negotiate. I don't care if we're all lying in our own blood, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's better to die for yeah. the long term. He knew he's like, England will rise again. Like, like it's better to go down than to survive and appease and to, and to negotiate just for our survival. Because what will the world look like then? He's like, it's better for us to, if this, if this long story of this Island is to end, let it end when we're all lying, choking in our, you know, he was a, he was brilliant in, in his oratory, but hmm. there was some, there's a message there. Hmm. So you started this channel and you started putting clips up of yourself. What did you see when you started to watch yourself showing yourself? So like, what, what's the, this is the meta, like this is the filmmaker critiquing the film filmmaking like what was the, like it what did you see bother me. You when i'm acting it doesn't bother me to watch myself i don't act that much but like for the secret scholars thing that short film it doesn't bother me when i'm playing a character and i've been doing yeah. it honestly because i can't afford to pay an actor and okay. i enjoy i yeah. like i was talking about heath ledger that is i think a subconscious dream of mine ever since i was a kid i think i did all of that in an effort to one day be able to be on the screen when i was saying i wanted to take this and put it on the screen yeah that's why I studied producing so that I could make the freaking movie and be in there. You know what I mean? It was just a really yeah. crazy okay. way of doing it. Um, 
it bothers me more when I see myself in that viral video clip. I am uncomfortable watching. Yeah, that. so I'm, yeah, I'm wondering about that. Like, so you're playing a teacher. Well, you're not playing a teacher, but you are playing a teacher. You're being seen as playing a teacher. So, what do you see when you see yourself playing the teacher? That's an interesting question because I wasn't playing a teacher in that clip, though. I was, I was just that's I was just talking to a student. Honestly, I'm more huh. comfortable if I am playing. That's why when I'm acting, I'm comfortable watching hmm. that. When I'm watching myself, it's strange because here I am watching Brett Cooper watch me or Candace yeah. Owens watch me or whatever, yeah. you know, there were certain people covered it and that was cool, but it's like, <laughs> I hate, I just got, I, I would skip over when I, my video come up and just watch their reaction. <laughs> huh. But anyways, I don't know why. The, yeah. The, yeah. I love what well, the Daily Wire is doing with, with filmmaking though. We should talk about that at some point because they are. They're the only solution I can see is what they are doing is to take this How? game into your own hands. Start okay. making like movies. Lady Ballers or you know, Pendragon or... Cycle, I think, okay. has the potential to make. I posted a little short. I was like, this is going to change Hollywood for it. has the capacity to. It okay. could go sideways for sure. How? There's they're entering the unknown. It could be embarrassing. It could be a failure. Snow White okay. could flop. It could be, and man, what a, there's a best belief. There's a bunch of people that would love to see that flop. They're hoping it does. They're in, it's a scary game. And I'm sure that she must be deep. She? She's probably scared. Brett Cooper Who? playing, Brett Cooper playing uh, Snow White. Okay. At the Daily Wire. Oh, uh, staking in Dragon Style. Her reputation. It's scary when you go on screen as an actor and you know that there's so many people that want you to fail going into it. Mm -hmm. And you're taking on something so iconic as Snow White. And mm. you're taking on the weight of the culture war. You're championing Daily Wire, who is championing this idea of resistance in the culture war of creating it's creating entertainment it has never been done no one has tried to compete with hollywood in america they do it overseas no one's tried to compete with hollywood here hmm. that's what they're doing do you think that's viable in the age of youtube do you think youtube yeah. um yeah i think it's viable i think it could work is a different game than than hollywood and what hollywood does the the product that that's a good question. Is it different? It's a, the game is the same. It's creating a world for people to watch and engage in on screen. Okay. How that screen, if it's, you're still going to be watching it on your TV or your computer. It's yeah. not that different. How they go about it, it's absolutely different. So now you, they might, I don't know what their situation is with the unions. If they're going sad, I doubt it that they have to be SAG sanctioned. People don't realize the magnitude having to navigate these unions, the producers guild, the directors guild makeup has a union. Everyone, IATSE, everyone's got a union. And now that drives costs up dramatically. Like we just saw the, um, the strikes happening and the good negotiations that came out of that. And what came out of that was essentially very similar to diversity quotas where they're cramming down. You have to have this many writers, 
and we'd have to go through and look at it. It's but that's essentially the mechanism. The number of writers doesn't matter. But okay, but you no, know, the end result of this uh, that writer's block was just more equity, diversity, and inclusion. Is that what you're saying? Did they it's, get like it's a similar mechanism? They're not saying okay. the writers have to be a certain racial makeup. They're saying that there has to be. There, because the strike was with the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild. So the writers are trying to make money and the job security essentially is their priority. So they, yep. you have to, if you're going to write a pilot, you have to have this many of our guild members work on the pilot, regardless of whether you need them or not. Hmm. That is a similar mechanism. It's just a top-down yeah. enforcement mechanism. Huh. It's similar to kind of diversity quotas. Oh, that man, it's top down. I just, I may, maybe there's some anarchist strain inside of me that just wants to blow up the whole system. It just seems like a rat's nest and stacked and stacked and stacked and stacked and like, go ahead and go woke and go broke. Like who's going to miss you? Hopefully that's the beauty of the competitive marketplace is that it will eventually die out. And I don't see it sustaining because with that's what's so important about what daily wire is doing is create okay. an alternative yeah. so now they have to compete that's the competitive marketplace if it's just hollywood and they're imploding they're just it's still just hollywood imploding but if there's an alternative now there's more now the implosion has larger ramifications yeah because okay. you have someone out there who's not playing by the same rules but are delivering the, the same product Mm. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Mm. Um, so in in the world of YouTube, there are these talking heads. I guess I'm one of them, and now you are too. Have you done much th uh, interacting with them? Like you know, watching the your different like th uh, film critics or you know, like the the people the YouTube uh, commentariat. As far as this viral video clip. Well, I mean, the viral video clip is reminiscent of a clip that Jordan Peterson released before he went viral. And the clip where I first came across Peterson, it was in 2015 or maybe even 2014, he posted this video, 45 minutes on three sentences of Nietzsche. And it was just him talking. And it was the same kind of film setup as you, you know, it's just the teacher talking to a student or explaining something to a student. And then he goes viral, you know, and then he does all these videos with him talking into a camera or you know sometimes there's an interview live with two people talking in the same room but it's a lot of just you know joe rogan this whole podcast thing like you're now you're in this podcast world i'm just wondering were you aware of that world were you interested in that world did you have yeah that's you, so you, remarkable that was, about this yeah. is it was i never dreamed i would be part have the i'm not part of it yet but there's the possibility yeah. that perhaps one day i might be able to and that is a dream i would really love to pursue because i would regret it for out forever if i didn't try okay. what what is what is the parameters I, i'm wondering if and maybe on the fly you can help me understand from the filmmaker's point of view just as a media or as a product like what is the value of this mode and like and what yeah, yeah. What, what is it that it does and so yeah why is it that we watch well jordan peterson's a, that's a whole nother kettle of fish here but because yeah. there's so many people on youtube brett cooper for example why and i do watch your videos why am i tuning into what because it's personality you get to feel like you kind of 
you don't know them, but you okay. feel like you uh, subconsciously, I think you do. And you're, so why am I tuning into Brett Cooper's reaction? I, so something happens, several YouTubers now react so in the same way. We'll take that viral clip that of me teaching. Now you've got these prominent YouTubers reacting to whatever's trending that day. And it's, oh, what's Brett saying about this? What's this person saying about this? And cause you want their reaction because you like their personality you have mm-hmm. a sense of rapport there now there's also informational videos on documentary joe rogan has a fascinating guest on and yeah. why the dark horse podcast they delve into some really cool stuff it's discussions that never it's the accessibility to these things that we never had before just what are you looking for in youtube is the thing is it just reactions which is fun like when i'm watching a brett cooper video that's the reason what we just addressed if i'm watching brett or eric weinstein it's different i'm looking for a different yeah it's more of an intellectual curiosity yeah yeah what what kind of stuff do you like and if you had a podcast which is like herpes nowadays there's more people with podcasts than than that uh, little human. My dream is, virus, I mean, but... Jordan Peterson had a big impact on me. Really? Dave when Rubin, did you, when did you come across Jordan? Around that time I was telling yeah. the story about the protests at Emerson. So, yeah. 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 Okay. And I started, that's, that was the time that I first stumbled upon him and Dave Rubin and, and what happened at Evergreen. And I, Wait, did you feel less alone or did you feel enlightened? Yeah. What was the, yeah, it was a strange feeling. Because you get a sense that these are things, when you're listening to him talk, these are things I already know. I just didn't know how to articulate them. And I didn't perhaps realize that I knew it or the importance of it. So I think we were talking about what makes a good adult, what makes an adult. Just the idea that happiness, all our lives we're told that purpose of life is happiness, chase happiness. And then it was suddenly such a revolutionary idea that perhaps it's not happiness because otherwise just go do drugs and drink because that's going to make you happier in that moment. It's the pursuit of responsibility and and then meaning derived from responsibility. You were talking about that earlier, being a stepfather. There's just these ideas that sound very rudimentary and, and Knowledge is such an interesting thing because once you know it, you can't unknow it. You can't forget it. It's just, it's not like you're memorizing a technique. It's, and it suddenly comes out when you're talking to someone like with that kid, or if I'm mm-hmm. talking to my mom about something and I'm, and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Why do you think that? I'm, and then I'm suddenly, I'm talking about things that I, heard these great people talk about and I'm articulating in a way that the other person can't even contend with. Hmm. And I think there's a power in that. Therefore there's a power in YouTube. Okay. Interesting. You kind of went into like the weaponization of knowledge, just a little hint. Like I don't know if it's weaponization. It's, I think, how is it? It wouldn't be weaponization because good ideas. Hmm. It's it's like a it's it's like the competitive marketplace. It's we contend with ideas and figure out which ones are stronger than other, and the only way to do that is through contending with them. That's not a weapon. It's not about power. 
Hmm. It's about figuring out the best choice to make for the wider implications for the long term. And that's not a weapon. That's not a, that's not a conflict. That's a necessary, necessary dialogue contending two Mm. things contending and some people do view that as conflict and then shy away from or say you're bullying me or uh, or you're trying to win debate versus dialogue and that's a true that's a telling sign too that there's something there and then you just kind of ease off and it's okay because you're you're at peace with what's important to you. It's like, I'm trying to question this because I think that people shouldn't be judged based on the color of their skin. And this to me seems hypocritical to that. And then when you start going down that road, they start to get uncomfortable, just whatever, pull back from it. It's your mom or your friend. You're at Thanksgiving or whatever, but that allows you to then suddenly you feel like you're you start to get this feeling that you're not bulletproof or a tank, but things just start, these other arguments, they just start to bounce off and then you, they just don't, they can't, they just, there's a power in logic. And I understand there's a sphere around the word power, but that's another great thing Jordan Peterson talks about is that it's not power, it's power, it's competency. Their tyranny is a different form of power. Competency is another form of power. And when you have that competency and you are speaking to these people, things do just seem to bounce off. And it's fascinating how that works. So we're discussing discussion. Yeah. And we we discussed filmmaking, Um, but filmmaking, I mean, discussion is um, contextual. It always happens within uh, context. It's dramatic. Usually actually the context of discussion is, is drama. Um, and uh filmmaking is all about the story right so what is your relationship to story and i i want to ask a religious question because ultimately all all uh questions of narrative are are religious questions um which kind of transcend they don't transcend logic but they make logic they they deal with the why i guess Mm -hmm. so i wonder what your um relationship to myth is to storytelling yeah. And what kind of stories yeah. uh have like lit you up that yeah. have driven you? So this is all coincidental, perhaps. Harry Potter had a massive impact on me. Oh. Yeah. If ever since I was it probably if I were to choose one singular story that had the greatest impact, it was that one. And watching Jordan Peterson dissect archetypes with that was yeah. remarkable. That's when I started to realize, wow, that there's like what you were saying about the mythos of story and these because what was interesting is i don't think jk rowling went through and listed out oh i'm going to hit this archetype of entering the unknown beneath the hogwarts castle and facing the 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 basilisk that could turn you to stone or the piece of harry potter that's within him that he has to face and voluntarily walk to his own demise to be reborn like jesus I don't think she was doing that consciously. I think these are things that when you are, when you're writing a story, whether it's a screenplay or a book and you're trying to connect with audiences, you're essentially, you're writing for yourself. You're writing. What's a story that I want to watch. I want to tell, which is perhaps another reason why a lot of these new movies aren't connecting in the same way because they're writing it for someone that possibly doesn't, you know, it's a different advice. But if you are writing it for yourself and you're staying true to that, 
what resonates are these eternal things that already exist within us. You can say that about the Socratic method. I don't, you could make an argument, did Socrates invent the Socratic method or did he discover something that was already there, like an archaeologist uncovering yeah. a, an artifact or a pyramid it's, or, or a mathematician discovering a mathematical breakthrough, a pattern yeah. that makes up our world. They didn't invent that theory. They discovered something already there and then they give a name to it and then yeah. it goes forth being known as that. I think stories operate in the same way. You know, there's a saying that all stories have been told already, and but it's there's an infinite there's infinite variations. But I think mm. that at at the core is how I would answer that question. Yeah. Well, what? So Harry Potter, why then? Uh, what made Harry Potter a good adult? Danger. Well, I could tell what made Harry Potter so fascinating to me wasn't necessarily Harry Potter because Harry Potter is kind of a blank slate that allows us to project ourselves on him. He doesn't have that much personality. Let's let's face it. You know, mm -hmm. he's he's not uh, an antagonist. He's not a deeply flawed. He's a blank. We project ourselves when we're reading that. We see ourselves in yeah in him. Well, I'd rather see uh, myself than Daniel Radcliffe. But go on. Yeah. Um, oh, I think it's, so it's not about Harry Potter. I think it's a world, the idea that there could be a magical world within our world. So mm. It's not Lord of the Rings. It's not a separate fantastical world. It's exists today. It could okay. be over there. It could, there could be a magic castle, this whole world right under our nose. I'm walking by these people every day. It's the mm. longing for more, the longing for a magical that there's more to this world than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. and, they, mm -hmm. and then it could be right under our nose. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, that, and so the creation of the story that I'm trying to create with the Secret Scholar Society, is it, it's essentially the same mechanism. It's the Secret Society where scholars are essentially wizards, because what's the closest thing we have to magic? It's knowledge and science. Some would say that perhaps magic is knowledge science we just don't fully understand yet mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the idea that so yeah science can be wielded if you were to take what we know today as science show it to people 200 years ago they would think that was magic your cell phone or whatnot mm -hmm. and so it still has that narrative device to it that's so cool and so I've, uh, yeah mm. that's why i think that's why it resonates so much with me well, this is interesting because um, you have apparently crossed um, some people who do believe in a secret society of, of, of oppression, and they call themselves the woke. I mean, they don't call themselves that anymore. They like to, they can't. They have to change their name because they keep on associating themselves with negative outcomes for some reason, even though they just want to pursue the glorious outcome of a utopia. But they see everything as a secret society of uh, conspir conspiratorial um, power dynamics mm -hmm. where hierarchies are constantly oppressing people. Mm -hmm. And that way of thinking, I wonder, I wonder if uh, your generation, I wonder if Harry Potter is, has uh, infected or affected you and, and, and your woke uh, cohort in the same degree, uh, like seeing or wanting this more and, and the woke mind by, or what, what did you call it? You called it a, uh, just this way of thinking that is prevalent 
in in colleges and stuff it is a way of looking at the world where it's seeing rather than mad seeing dark magic everywhere right it's seeing this other thing and then and then once you're initiated into it then you you really do have like this revelatory like i have to change i have to dismantle i have to disrupt you know the the system of oppression and and if you're white i have to process it like with the evergreen stuff it was this religious fervor of realizing like oh i can i can now make of myself a sacrifice to change history mm -hmm. now um it's mm -hmm. interesting i'm wondering uh uh, what your thoughts are on it's, that it's that like, same feeling as the person on the Oscar stage, except in that Oscar who's making that, that declaration of a, of a speech politically because mm -hmm. of the feeling, the emotion that of, of, of being part of this thing that I think it's an, it's a desire to, for something larger than yourself. It's just the wrong way to go about it. How do you think? For the, what, what's tellingly wrong about it? Aside from the virtue signaling, which is well, kind of the vain part of it. being but... wrong about hierarchies and power dynamics where there are no power dynamics and the demonization of competency and, and male strength. And I mean, there's flaws. We could sit here all day and, and okay. I say okay. the flaws, but it's why are these things appealing? Well, why has socialism been so appealing throughout history? Why is this a pattern we see happen over and over and over? We know both sides, the right can go too far. The left can go too far. There's an appeal to when it does, and we get caught up in it. And I, But there's something to be said for feeling like you're part of something larger than yourself, and you're a, a warrior for that cause, a so what, so but a social justice warrior, some would call. But they do feel that they are hmm. taking a stand. Again, I'm. You have to use those pronouns, or you're. And I'm going to yell, and I'm going to kick the speaker, and I'm going to protest. It's the same emotion that causes them to protest and to take to the streets, hmm. which is. Which is groupthink. Groupthink derives from something larger. The desire for it's a misguided desire, which is again what was so revolutionary about listening to someone like Jordan Peterson say where it starts with the individual actually. And this is really a foolish way to think about all this stuff with yeah. groups and generalizing people based on the color of your skin. That determines your ability to engage in a classroom. It, it's it's all connected. Well, why are you predisposed to to that way of thinking like the individual like is it something that you discovered or something that was instilled in you that's a like good what, question and why would you be inoculated to that very fervent desire to change the world together with thousands and thousands of people not, and all the I'm power not structures inoculated. i'm okay. not inoculated i just think the way i think about it is we're all you have to understand the nobility of the other side's intentions we all want a better world i do think we all we all want a better world we disagree on how to go about it they think they're doing the right thing they genuinely believe many of these people they genuinely like will take away the hollywood execs who might be just playing the game for business a lot of these kids at these universities you know at what we saw at evergreen you saw that mm. they genuinely believed that they were 
doing the right thing. And that is what's so scary about it. And that's why we don't cross that line, like Churchill said, because Hmm. it's such a slippery slope. And when it does go bad, it takes a long time to get there. But but when we get, it gets really bad. And now why do I different i've asked myself that i don't i think it I, it started where we were what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation with what happened in the classroom personal experiences i witnessed yeah. things with my own eyes and when, when it happens to you it's different so then when i try and communicate that let's say to my mom uh, my brother they genuinely did not believe it. My brother has since experienced things for himself, hmm. and now he is in the exact same place. He would be part of this conversation right with us, and he'd be aware on every frequency we were talking about. <laughs> because he, he, but he had to go through it himself. It's like someone who's trying hmm. to get them to go to rehab. They have to want it. Well, it's not the right analogy because they they have to want it for themselves. But there's something you have to experience. You can't tell people that this is happening because it just sounds, and that's the power in it. It's just, it sounds crazy, but when you see it for yourself, you can't unsee it, and then you feel alone, and then you do some digging, and then you find people. Per- on YouTube. And yes, people say, oh, YouTube radicalizes people, whatever, put that aside. (laughs) You find people and you're like, this is sanity. Thank goodness. And you don't feel so alone. And then you, and you listen and you're, and you, it's knowledge. You can't unknow knowledge once you know it. That's become, that has been my journey. Well, you're, you're describing another waking up process. What do you do with this knowledge? So, so another thing, and, and I know that it's a contentious term, um, the, the woke, I know that with critical social justice, whatever you want to call it, but there is a process of awakening to a truth and that awakening to a truth comes with a dictate, an urgency to change and to fix the world right here, right now, to do something. You have to do something. You have to do the work. It's packaged in that idea and in that in that wakefulness. Whatever you're describing is another sort of like, okay, this is weird. You do it. I'm really alone. Okay, I, it, this makes sense. I understand. Now you have another kind of Gnostic insight you're, that your knowledge makes you different or see the world differently. What do you do with that knowledge? What is What is your responsibility at that point? Your, your responsibility, this is what I would tell any student, any move, is to you, is to you and your family, first of all, because you can't, you have to be, uh, hmm. I mean, it goes back to that idea of you, it, hmm. you have to be in order before you can fix anything around you. You have to, you're, you're, you're not, you have hmm. a higher responsibility to you and your family than you do to fixing the problems of the world because you're you have the actual ability to fix your own life and to be responsible for your family and to better your family for the long term and those who are going to come after you and that's an idea that is ancient we look Mm. at at past societies feudal japan i mean whatever documentary you you've been watching recently you'll notice this pattern they were, it was about the Medici, Renaissance Italy. It was about the family beyond a single generation. So 
and there's things that you're not going to be able to fix these larger problems definitely if you can't even be a if you can't even fix yourself and and you can't hmm. be a responsible member of society okay here we go here's another vague responsible member of you you're saying the word adult again what what is the content yeah. and what have you discovered to be to, the content of that for me it's when I have the responsibility to take an opportunity when it comes. So when this viral, when this video went viral, like I'm doing this interview now, it's some would be like, Oh, this is old nuts. But I do feel that this is, it's not just for me. I'm doing this for my family for, because I have a responsibility to try and hit every target to make the bows, to make the most out of whatever is presented, unexpected or not. So here I am to try okay. and make the best out of it because I, I would not be doing, I would regret it and I would not be doing what I, everything I could. So in other examples, I, I moved and now I, there's a, I have the ability to join the fire department. Oh, cool. It's a way to contribute to the community also make some money on the side feel more satisfied it it satisfies a deep thing within me that is perhaps that masculine hmm. an aspect of masculinity that we now shun a lot of young men want to do something like that whether it's the military or and a lot of women too so it fulfills a deep part of my soul and that's being a functioning member of society and I'm a teacher and, but it's at the end of the day, it's still all for my family. Okay. Is, is family the highest good? Yeah. For, for me, you? for yeah. me, for, yeah. Now what, if, what if you're an orphan and you don't have any siblings? Well, then I, I think you're the best thing you can do is, develop a family of your own eventually by yeah. strengthening yourself, which is why you have to be the best that you can be before you can even help your family. And then if you can really help your family, then you can help your community. And then if you can help your community, then you can run for a office or what, then you can start talking about all this stuff that you're out protesting, yeah. trying to make these big changes in the world. And so if you don't have a family, find that family, find a partner, kids, 20 years, now you've got the meaning. You know, it, Wait, are you, so you're saying the proper order of life is go to school, get married, and then start a YouTube channel? Or have two if babies? If the between? opportunity arises <laughs> and Elon Musk tweets about you, yeah, go start your freaking YouTube channel. <laughs> with something like that, yeah. It starts yeah. with what is at what is the most immediate thing within your ability to take action upon, and that's you. And then from there, it ripples out. What's your, uh, your family's uh, origin? Where are you guys uh, my like parents old school? Were both American professors, or? art, yeah, we're Americans. Like, when did your when did your phenotype uh, deliver itself to these new shores? <laughs> I was born in 1987. I have a younger brother, two years younger. And my yeah, but how many generations do you guys? Go I don't back? know. Do you know? You don't even Smith. know. Smith. My last name oh. is Smith. Yeah. Okay. 
I don't know. You don't know. You, 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 you know. Mayfair or maybe maybe you got conscripted at some point. Interesting. Okay. I mean, your dad's from California side. then. Yeah, he was in LA. He's a Hollywood. My granddad was the head of the art department of Warner Brothers. My dad oh, no wanted way. nothing. Yeah, my dad wanted nothing to do with that. What did he end up uh, teaching? Wood design, woodworking. No way. At the, at the college level, oh, wow. my mom taught metals design, right? Jewelry wow. making and, and enameling. And then she, I mean, she she's a hustler. She became the head of her department and started, uh, now she's doing a study abroad program in Italy for the last 10 years. Oh, I grew wow. up seeing them as teachers. So there was probably something, something yeah. there that- Were you guys religious at all or- no, that's the thing is my mom used to try and take us to a church now and then because I think she just felt like that's what she needed to do because she grew up doing that. My grandfather, my grandparents were, and uh, it never mm. stuck though. And I think it was just because yeah. she was doing it. Just recently, I was having this conversation with her. I was like, do you believe in God? And she's like, oh, I think it's a good sentiment. I think it's good that people do, but, but she doesn't really. She's yeah. like, I was like, well, why not? Well, because Christians just think they're better than everyone and they just start wars. And it's these generalizations that perhaps that's why I've kind of gotten good at critical thinking because when your family is like that, huh. you're constantly, you're constantly, uh, something comes up and you you don't want to cause crime, but you constantly have these things to engage with when everyone around you disagrees. Okay. That's how I would, I used, when this first started happening, I was like, look, mom, I understand you think I'm crazy. Like she literally thought I was, she was thought I was nuts for Jordan Big Peterson. Blah, blah, yeah. Blah. yeah. Yeah. She thought I was nuts, like for disagreeing. She had no one disagrees. No one in this world, like in that world. So I was like, Mom, look about it this way. If every single person in my life, my best friends I grew up with, you, my entire family, if everyone disagrees with me, but I am still quietly at peace hmm. with an adamant that I have my reasons, you might want to look a little closer and listen to what I'm engaging in the conversation. Listen to what I have to say. Yeah. I, I think these things for a reason because I've seen these things and I can explain it to you, but you have to be willing to engage in the conversation. And she has slowly come to realize, she's like, I do like Jordan Peterson. This is taken since 2016. He Peterson and, pilled her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She does think he's uh, cool and smart and, uh, you know, but there's certain things she'll never budge on and we're not even getting all that. Hey, but, no, no, no. Huh? But what? yeah. Yeah. There, there's something telling that you, you've brought up a several times now, like the, a feeling of peace. Yeah. Like, did you, did you discover that at some point in your teenage years? You're like, Oh, that no, is where I stand now. That is where I my stand. teenage years. No. no. Okay. No, it was no, this, a sense of peace hasn't only well, within the last, I don't even only recently that I arrived. Huh? been able to i mean because well i'm at peace but then i'm always i need to achieve there's this I oh yeah, need yeah, yeah, to, yeah 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 that's so i'm just I'm saying not, i wouldn't say yeah but but as as a as a standing point like it it seems like you're describing uh describing phenomenologically what it's like to be close to the truth or aiming towards the truth or towards correct action and and you're using the term peace it sounds like so i'm wondering yeah. like where did you how did you know that that was the place where like your compass is pointing because, you? because all the bullets bounced off when they started 
when I came under fire, when okay. I would engage in these conversations, like we were yeah. talking about earlier, like the weapon of, of uh, it, whenever I would engage okay. in a conversation with someone who disagreed and I would do so very calmly and Roger and kindly yeah. in good faith. And I noticed that it just bounces off because truth has that power objective hmm. truth alive to, arrived at through logic. It's not so much that, I mean, some of these things we're talking about are my personal opinions and philosophies and takes on the world that I've developed. But if you're talking about these first principles, like don't treat people differently based on the color of their skin. Do you agree on that? Yes, I agree on that. Okay. That, but is this not contradictory? And it just crumbles. Okay. I write, okay, this seems pretty solid. And I, over the years, this happens again and again and again. Yeah. And if nothing, I'm, my mind is open to being changed on all things. He, he cannot change his mind is never going to change anything. So yeah. it's just like we were talking about the least bad option. There's nothing better has ever presented itself. Was there a particular moment where your worldview crumbled? It wasn't a singular moment, but it no, was being yeah. at Emerson as a whole. Yeah. And yeah. that was a shocker. It really felt it was, it, I, I get why there's that saying the red pill. Right. And I know, understand the connotations change, but there's, yeah. because when you, it does feel like you're waking up to an illusion and you can't go back to sleep and it feels like everyone else doesn't see it and they're just going along with it. And you want to be like, dude, what are you doing? Look. And they don't want to look and they actively, they're like, nope, I'm going to make this decision and go the other way. I'd rather not know. Is that I not feel... demoralizing for you? It can be. Yeah, it did. It did cause me to go into a dark place, but it's, yeah, it can be rough. Yeah. But I've been good at, you know, we were talking about me as like a high school kid or whatever. I was at peace doing my own thing. You know, maybe that's why I echoed with Heath Ledger because it was just, huh. I'm a bit of a oddball loner, I guess. So I was, I was okay on my own. So I was at, yeah, I was okay with it. If okay. that makes sense. Yeah. No, my, um, well, when I try to figure out or when I've tried to just think through my experience being at Evergreen and why that stuff just didn't make and continued to make no sense to me while more and more people were getting obsessed with that stuff. Um, I have no, I had already, well, I was older, but I don't, well, one, I don't like group think. And when I, when I feel in group think, cause I did grow up in churches going around in churches and you see like every once in a while, this group think start, thing starts happening. You're like, no, 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 we don't have to go that way to believe in God. You don't have to, yeah. You don't have to do that to, to actually, that, that's a sign that you're, you're, you're missing the mark somehow. So one, I just like, I don't, I don't like it, but also I'm like, fine. Like, no, I don't, I don't agree. No, I don't, I'm not going to yeah. use pronouns. I'm sorry. I whatever. I'm, I'm not, I don't understand why it matters if you're white or black. I'm sorry. Like, like if that's an interesting story, cool, but I'm not going to give you more power over me. I'm not going to let you guilt me. My guilt, my shame is between me and my creator. Like it's not yeah. for you. Like don't even touch that. Cause I know you just want to manipulate me. It's just. Yeah. And, and God different. is like that too. It, it's a very similar feeling. 
because you can't, so many people just shut off at the very conversation, the very notion of it. So you have to come to peace with it being like, you know, they're not going to understand it and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Cause <laughs> I'm in this game for me and my family and okay. then I'll go from there. So I don't need you to understand it. Like if okay. you're at work and your boss or a colleague ex wants to exert control over you and feel like they're your boss, it's like, I'll let him feel like he's, I'm not going to push back on it because it's hmm. the end result that matters. Hmm. And it's something I've noticed. That, and I'd be like, why do I, that? a colleague was asking me about that. A colleague who I do trust noticed that. He's like, why don't you say anything to him when he does that? It's better not to because that actually makes it easier to get to the end result. Don't reveal what you're, you're this is going in another direction, but don't reveal what doesn't need to be revealed. When you're at work, you're playing a game. It's like a political game on a small level. Like everybody, so never reveal anything that doesn't, isn't useful. Like let him think he's winning. Just what are you going to get out of pushing back or being like, no, God is real for this. Look, you're not going to change their mind. Yeah. Huh. Huh. What do what do you uh I guess this is all new for you. Do where where do you go with this? Are you just looking at you just like this piece of kryptonite just landed in your hand. You're like, "Okay, what do I do with this?" I all I can think to do is strive to live as forthrightly as I can, do my best okay. like we were saying, feeling like you have a responsibility to at least try and hit every target that presents yeah. itself. So yeah. take every top opportunity is there, I can. Is there a piece of content that you want to produce? I, I I know that there's the film there, but like if you were to just do a lecture series, what would it be on? Like, like just like um, if you had carte I'm, blanche and like a, a budget to produce things, what would you anything, do? Yeah. If I could do anything... I mean, it sounds crazy, but it would be to do like what Jordan Peterson is doing or to work with them at the okay. Daily Wire, like with what they're doing with filmmaking. It just, okay. it's so fast. It fits with everything my life has culminated in. Okay. Not that they would ever ask me to, or I'm even qualified, or I'm not on that level at all. I understand that. But it's, it has, even before any of years ago, well, I didn't even know they were doing the movie thing years ago, but it just aligns so well the fact that they are doing narrative filmmaking I do, mm -hmm. as well as all of the other things that fascinate me and yeah jordan peterson what he does is it's had a massive impact on me and uh, if there was if you were like if you could go do anything working with those people would be would you do jordan peterson the musical I don't know what that would even look like. I would <laughs> it would start with try. Kermit the Frog singing. Oh, it's yeah, not easy be being great. great. I don't know. What it would. The intellectual dark web, all those guys, man. It was just, it's such a cool mm. thing. So yeah, yeah let's see where it takes me. Yeah. Do you have a piece of philosophy that you're particularly uh, fond of? Piece of philosophy that I'm... Because you're very philosophical. Yeah. But maybe it's... maybe it's more of a, a attitude that you've cultivated rather than a... Well, pedigree Dave. Understood. Looking at the world, like it is a bit of a game when we're talking about these things. Like, don't reveal your cards, but there's a, there's certain truths that are eternal. One, I I do believe is it's easier to be stupid than smart. Human beings are most people you can count on 
always most people will take the path of least resistance and it's easier to be stupid than to be smart. Therefore, I think this is another reason we're seeing everything. Therefore, mm. most people are going to go that path, but don't do what's easy. Make the difficult decision for the sake of the future, not the immediate now. Do you, do you uh, feel um, the need to write a book? I never thought I would. Do I feel the need? I'm do you just, feel compelled that uh, is writing I'm, something? I am interested in it. Yeah, I was I was approached like we were talking about with agents or anything about yeah. how a little flash in the pan silly thing that doesn't change who I'm. I'm no more qualified than I was three weeks ago. Yeah. Why suddenly am I? <laughs> But yeah, I was approached to write a book on critical thinking and that in line with my philosophies, I've been saying I would be a fool not to try and hit every target. So I'm going yeah. to strive to do my best. Okay. Yeah. Keep you posted. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I'm working Seven steps of highly critical thinking. <laughs> Something like that. that. <laughs> but I mean, and yeah, like 12 rules for life was such a, that's changed my philosophy on like nonfiction. Now I'm actually... Had I not read that book, I'd be like, gosh, it's going to suck. It's going to be like a textbook. What a boring thing to write. Yeah. But what yeah. he did with that book, that was one of the most interesting reads I've encountered. And it was a nonfiction book. And, you know, it's so, yeah, the goal is to create something kind of like, not that I will be able to do anything like that, but that's, uh, it's good to have a target to strive for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What a, what a weird year. I mean, it's, two months into 2024 i'm sure you had a different trajectory you probably like i'm gonna try to do like two more scenes in the next six months or something <laughs> yeah and... i was just working on that movie yeah you know, yeah which is already such a harebrained that's like a metaphor for my life just these impossible harebrained ideas that <laughs> the analogy for producer a movie producer a teacher once told me in my first class at film school is there's a hillside covered with people one person stands up, a crazy man just stands up and he starts dancing with conviction. He's, something's going on in his head. And then two more people start to dance and then four people start to dance and then more and more and more and it gets bigger and bigger and suddenly the whole hillside is dancing. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a movie producer. <laughs> and I was like, so, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so you just started dancing. I get, yeah, because it's, I'm going to do it either way. I have, a, it's like, it's a, I can't not, I'm going to always try and if I can't do the movie, I'm going to try and write the book Yeah. like Harry Potter. And I want to tell that story so badly. And ever since I was like, yeah, regardless of what I'm doing professionally, if I'm teaching, I'm still going to be doing that. And that's what I love about teaching is the last time. Those are things. Mm -hmm. but we'll see do what have, happens. Do you have like an oddball hobby, like archery or something? Do you, do? <laughs> oh, I do you shoot? Uh, I, I've had it. I had an archery phase when I was a kid. Yeah. Phase, curve yeah. Bow. yeah. Huh. Um, my dad got into <laughs> compound bow big time and I have a lot of weird oddball hobbies at the, you know, ninjutsu. And that's what I'm trying to get back into that. My brother does Japanese sword fighting. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're the oldest and 
Maybe I'm the oldest for two okay. years. So he's, he's taking the Mall Ninja dream to the next level? He went to Japan to study with Masaki Hatsumi to get his Shodan, his like a black belt from the last living. He might be dead at this point. This is a few years ago. Wow. The last grandmaster of ninjutsu lineage, family lineage, actual ninja. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I will not pick a bar fight with your brother then, <laughs> or I'd ever cross him if he goes to bars. Not that I go to bars. Yeah. Uh, well, Warren, where can people find you on X and uh, yeah, YouTube? Yeah, my X is WT Smith 17. Oh, wow. You just because it was already there before all this happened years ago. Like I told you, I never used it. So my yeah. brother's like, you got to go find this. I was like, God, that's an awful name. But anyway, so yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. YouTube channel, Warren Smith dash secret scholar society. Oh, cool. Or you, can, all right. you can just type in secret scholar society. You'll probably, I guess find it's it. too early to say, and you're, you're probably in the middle of teaching and there's probably so many things going on. Do you have a production schedule for anything coming up? Is there anything? The, in, we've been just doing it on, yeah, like over breaks yeah, on the okay. weekends after yeah. school with yeah. like one or two colleagues, you know, so we're not in a formal production model. Yeah. Like in the past when I was producing a feature, it would be raise the finances, hire the crew, yeah. go flat out for three weeks, four weeks. Yeah. Have you considered uh, doing something regular with your academic content? I would love to more. That's one of the things I'm not going to be able to record in the classroom anymore because of yeah. this, this, not that the school, Jeez, like not that guy. there was any, not that there was any rules broken. It's just, they were just like, whoa, this is big. Yeah. Got to run everything by us. It's just not going to be a feasible thing. Okay. Don't answer it. this question if you can't answer it, but I'm just curious. Does that, is that student? <laughs> what what does he think about being off camera voice? And you don't have he, to answer it. No, he's just <laughs> very graciously. I think he sees that as a good thing because it wow. shows him in a good light. It shows his ability to reason. To change his mind, yeah. He shouldn't be embarrassed yeah. at all. And he's not. And it yeah. shows I was trying to explain to the school that he, it shows that he has the I should talk about this, but he has the ability. His voice has value. Yeah. His voice reached millions of people. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, one, one of the things that has been robbed and hopefully it comes back, but in the earlier, and I think we're kind of in the, we're getting out of the early days of social media, but I mean, the first stage would be like, oh, it's fun and, and, uh, find old friends and post your food pics. But then something happened in 2015, 2016, it got heavily politicized. Um, people started to see each other as effigies a lot. And a lot of the culture war stuff really distilled people down into like just data points rather than entire trajectories of thought. Like you, your opinion mm -hmm. can be summed up in this one tweet, this one joke and taken out of context because your life has no context other than that one statement. And the endeavor or in order for the internet or social media media to evolve is to understand that social media users are way they're human beings with a rich arc of change. And so that light, that tiny little moment, I think one of the narrative values of why it took off the way it was, it did wasn't just your handling of the situation or the content of JK Rowling. And if that, you know, like there's a valence, a political valence to that, but it's that, that, that young man watching and allowing his presuppositions to melt and being cool with that saying, Oh, you know, having that, that kind of like that miniature little eureka moment, which shows the, the human capacity 
for curiosity, for criti- critical thinking, which another way of thinking, just like, oh, I can see it in more than one way. I have, I have parallax. I have more than parallax view of, of this topic. So like there was a narrative arc yeah, in that, that really exactly. like, yeah, there's a, that's what made it mythological. Yeah. 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 There's like a three action, a journey occurred. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was bigger than J.K. Rowling. I said this in the Pierce interview, but I do think this was about more that it, it was kind of just a, a, a metaphor for so many other presuppositions, yep. not just J.K. Rowling being transphobic or not. Yeah. It's just, it's just someone with a conclusion and there's more complexity and the realization. And that's just, when it's a rare thing, but when it does occur, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Warren Smith, congratulations. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Like, I, it's, it's truly an honor. Your work has had an impact. <laughs> I'm so, that's amazing. I didn't know that was you. That's remarkable. This is truly an honor. Seriously, funny? I can't tell funny? you how much this means. Like, tell if you ever do get to talk to Brett, tell him I'm a huge and Heather. I'm a huge fan. Okay. Seriously, they are they're part of that web that I was talking about that had a massive impact yeah. on me. Yeah. So yeah. just tell them thank you from the dude in that little JK video if they saw it or not. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll pass it on. I'll pass thank it on. You. Um and you have a good night and I hope to have you back. So, thank you. Anytime. The lines no, open. This was great. Absolutely. Right. Ciao. Have- Anytime. Ciao. Thanks. I'll see you.